Good morning everybody. This will be our very last look at John's first letter, for this year at least. I wonder what you've made of it as we've gone through. It's a letter of contrasts. John thinks in terms of black and white. For example, light and darkness, obedience and sin, love and hate, right and wrong attitudes and ideas, life and death. And we've said that it feels like we're going round in circles. Themes keep reappearing, rather like in a symphony. What is John really saying and why? Perhaps some background will help. John had spent the later part of his life in the area around Ephesus, and he writes to the churches there which he knows well. They've had a crisis which resulted in a split in the church perhaps splits in the churches. Some teachers had arrived who believed that only the spiritual was good, the body and the material world were all evil. They claimed that Jesus was not God made man by incarnation because spirit could not join with evil flesh. Rather he was an ordinary human at birth and only became divine at his baptism and his divinity was given up before death. The way to salvation and knowing God was not through faith in Christ's sacrificial death for us, but rather through sp special knowledge or spiritual experience. John calls these people antichrists. They've got their ideas about Jesus all wrong. They'd persuaded some church members to join them and others had resisted their ideas and stayed on side with John and the other apostles. We can read about this in chapter 2, which the lectionary missed out. But those who were left in the church were troubled by it all. Splits are painful. We're disturbed when we come to a dividing of the ways. John writes to encourage them to stay firm. So he started by restating the historical roots of the faith, reminding them of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' birth, life and death. He stated one of his purposes of writing in that first section. 1 verse 4, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The faithful Christians in the Ephesus region would have fellowship with the apostles and other churches across the Roman world. This fellowship was dependent on them holding to the core teachings that they had received. Those who followed the new teachings could not be counted in this fellowship. So the letter is partly about who is in and who is out and how to tell the difference. Notice that John does not criticise those who are left for allowing the split. While splits are always painful, and often about personalities, they are sometimes over the most serious issue of preserving the truth of the gospel. Unity never comes from papering over serious differences of faith. If a new teaching undermines the gospel of salvation through Christ's atoning death, then a separation is not only unavoidable, it is the right thing to do. In the same prayer where Jesus prays for unity among us, he also prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Truth matters 
So when disagreements occur, we must ask the question, is this a question of taste or truth? Then in the main part of the letter, we have two assertions, each introduced by the words, this is the message. The first is 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John talks about walking in the light, the need for a holy life, about openness and transparency. He also wrote so that, so that they would not sin. That's in chapter 2. These false teachers said that sin was unimportant because the body is evil anyway. The spirit is free of sin no matter what the body does. John said that's wrong. Jesus has paid a great price for our sins on the cross. And if we are in fellowship with him, then we cannot continue in a lifestyle of wrongdoing. In chapter 2, he warns about those who are trying to deceive the believers, those who live by the values of the world rather than those of Christ. And then in 3, 1 to 3, he reminds us of Christ's return, when we will be made perfectly like him. The second section in 3.11, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We're to live a life of love because God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. This is the mark of the true Christian community. They love each other practically and sacrificially in response to the amazing love of God. At the end of our reading today, John gives a third reason for writing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's beginning to wind up his letter. He wanted these faithful Christians to know that all was well with them. Being sure of eternal life is not arrogant, because it does not depend on our goodness or effort or special knowledge and experience. Rather, it is a matter of humble trust in God's promises. So I will end with a quick look at today's passage from chapter 5. We return to the theme of who Jesus is. Those false teachers were wrong about Jesus not being born divine. We have God's own testimony about who he is, given before his birth and after it. John the Baptist announced him and proclaimed him, and God identified him at his baptism. His miraculous works prove it as well as his teachings and his blameless life. And the resurrection marks him out, if nothing else does, as unique, both God and man. So here's a key verse of 1 John. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does it mean to have the Son of God? We use the word have in many ways. I have a friend, I have a headache, I have an ice cream, and so on. It often means that I own or control something. It also means the object is connected with me and does its thing for me. To say that I have the Son of God certainly means I'm connected with him and he does his thing for me. Here's an illustration. In the film A Passage to India, the young Indian, Dr. Aziz, is accused of molesting a young English woman. He is innocent, but poor, 
and his situation looks hopeless, as under British rule, the judge and jury will be British. He is despairing and hopeless. But a famous Indian lawyer hears about the case. His life is all about liberating India from British rule. And he sends word that he will defend Dr. Aziz for nothing. This changes everything. For Dr. Aziz, having this famous lawyer means justice and freedom as they win the case. So for us, we stand accused of sin against the highest power there is, and we are in fact guilty. Our situation is hopeless, yet we have an advocate who has suffered instead of us. To have such an advocate as Jesus ensures our acquittal, our freedom. He who has the Son has life. Amen.